um, Pastor Sam had all of these plans to begin a new series in Daniel, and then his plans were thwarted, of course, by the arrival of his baby. I'm sure that uh, he's not disappointed in that turn of events, but here I am to fill in for him. And what I'd like to do with you this evening is do my best to, without stealing the first sermon on Daniel, um, nevertheless begin to sort of lay the ground for the theme that Pastor Sam will unfold for you for the rest of the, the season. Does that make sense? And to do that, I'm going to take you to the book of Revelation and the second chapter, verses 12 through 17. Um, and so where Pastor Sam's sermon was going to be called Standing Out, mine is going to be called Standing Out in, what did I say? In Pergamum and in Zurich. In Pergamum and Zurich. So let's hear God's word together, and then we'll meditate upon it for some moments together. And this is one of the seven letters in the book of Revelation to the seven churches in the Asia Minor or Turkey, present-day Turkey region, uh, that Jesus uh, dictated to the Apostle John, and he recorded for us at the beginning of the last book of our Bibles. And here's what God's Word says, and this is Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to, uh, come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So last summer, I had my first opportunity to travel in continental Europe. Before that, I had just been to England one time. Now, I would have never guessed I'm living in continental Europe, right smack in the middle. But last year was my maiden voyage in Spain and in France and in Belgium, then up to England, and then finally Iceland before going to North America. And people asked me when I returned, both in America and when I returned to Korea, where I was living, they said, what were the highlights of your trip? And two things always stood out to me from last summer. One, the, the stunning, unexpected beauty of Iceland. And number two, the Bodleian Library in Oxford University. Has anybody been to the Bodleian Library? Or know what I'm talking, anybody know what I'm talking about? Famous library, well, not famous to you apparently, but to me, and nerds like me, 
the Bodleian Library is the holy grail of libraries uh, at Oxford University. At the Bodleian Library, the books used to be chained to the walls because back in the day, books were super, super valuable, and they didn't want people walking out of the library with these books. Uh, King Charles I uh, thought that maybe since he was, you know, the king, that maybe he would be able to, you know, check books out of the Bodleian Library when he was living in Oxford. Answer from the librarian, what do you think? Nope. Sorry. Uh, you are the king and everything, your majesty, but you'll have to come here and study. But they did build him a special royal study carol where he got to come and camp out with books chained to the wall. If I was living in the time when John wrote his apocalypse at the end of our Bibles, and if I was on a dubious uh, study vacation in that part of the world on a trip through Asia Minor, and somebody said, what are the two best parts of your trip? I would probably say to them, well, obviously the natural beauty of the Mediterranean coast. I've actually never seen it myself, but I hear and I see pictures. And I would say number two, because again, I'm a nerd, the library at Pergamum. The library at Pergamum. At the time of John's writing, Pergamum had the second largest library in all of the world. It had 200,000 volumes. Now, just by comparison, the Bodleian Library in Oxford didn't have 200,000 volumes until the 19th century. So in the time of Jesus, it was all about the Pergamum Library. Um, now, when I, visited my, uh, when I visited Oxford, my advisor, who, who, my doctoral advisor, who didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge or one of those hoity-toity places, he joked with me before I left to go visit. He said, you know, um, Jesus came to destroy evil, powerful institutions like Oxford University. Just keep that in mind while you're looking at the beautiful spires. He's joking, of course, because he's jealous. But all joking aside, when John revealed... Christ's will to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum might have been the Oxford of the ancient world, of the Roman Empire. Both places signified the power of the secular sword. After all, one of the things you learn about Oxford when you visit is that there were martyrs martyred there, right outside the Bodleian Library. And there were Christian martyrs, as we've just read, in the city of Pergamum as well. Both places obviously signified with their libraries the gathered wisdom of the secular age of their time. The wise had all of their thoughts published and sent there. And insofar as the cultures and the governments and the institutions of these two places, Pergamum and Oxford, were out of sync with the reign of Jesus Christ and the peace of his church, then both places were, as Jesus says of Pergamum in that time, the place where Satan's throne is, where the devil dwells. But then Jesus, as he does in each of these seven letters, he begins by commending the church at Pergamum, by saying, here's some things that you're doing right. I want to encourage you about these things. Despite all these cultural and these institutional pressures of being a church in a place like Pergamum at that time, Jesus says, you've had a robust and a faithful witness in this city. You've held fast in spite of all of this pressure, even this martyrdom around you. You've not denied me and my teaching. 
and I commend you for it. But, as he does in each of these letters at the beginning of Revolution, Jesus also then turns and calls the church to repentance, to turn from the things that are not commendable about their witness. What does he say to the church at Pergamum? Well, as, as often in apocalyptic literature and here in the book of Revelation, the language is symbolic. Sometimes we don't know a specific reference and what it means exactly, but it's meant to sort of paint a picture for us of what's going on. Scholars, I think, correctly suggest that whatever was going on at Pergamum, a teaching, a teaching that was out of sync with the way of Christ, was probably not a matter of like theology. It wasn't like somebody was saying wrong things about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or God the Father or something like that. They didn't just need a theology lesson. But whatever was happening at Pergamum was more subtle than that. And it had to do with the Christian life, about how to follow Jesus faithfully day in and day out. It probably, scholars tell us, uh, had to do with a group that was leading people astray, that was teaching, most likely, immoral actions and justifying them. And so this was a teaching that the Pergamum church was kind of attracted to. And they became a little bit permissive, as we say. A teaching that reeked of the corrupt ways of the culture that surrounded this church, the culture into which this church was to bear witness. They were becoming too much like the people around them, rather than spreading the aroma of Christ in that town. Now, how is it you might ask yourself, on the one hand, and kind of at the same time, that a church can be commended for glorious things that they're doing for the sake of Christ. And then on the other hand, and at the same time, have some of their works and some of their ways condemned. Commended and condemned at the same time. I want us to think a little bit about how this works. A permissiveness and a resoluteness at the very same time in the life of a church? In what ways, we should ask, might churches today be simultaneously praiseworthy and also have some of their ways condemned? I think there's numerous ways, but let's just think of a couple possibilities, shall we? Are there, for example, churches that stand bravely against the gathered dark powers of our present evil age, and they, for example, condemn sexual immorality, even though they're warned by the secular authorities that the way in which they condemn sexual immorality verges on hate speech. This is happening in some places, right? Their orthodoxy is not received well by their surrounding culture. Is it possible for a church to have a robust teaching on sexual ethics, for example, but at the same time to bow to the cultural idols of wealth and success and status? For example, a church might automatically think that because somebody is wealthy, because they're well-esteemed, because they dress nice, oh, these should be our leaders then. These, should be, these people should be elected elders and deacons. Then the people in town will respect us and like us. If we can get the judge to be an elder... If we can get the best lawyer in town to be a deacon, maybe we'll have sway in this town. 
Is it possible to be orthodox in our doctrine and our beliefs and even catch flack for that orthodoxy from the surrounding community? Even while we elevate spiritually unfit people for really superficial reasons to these offices of deacon and elder, even pastor, just because they're successful. Look, it's not possible. It happens all the time in the church, doesn't it? And I've been a part of or been around such churches. The bigger the steeple, the closer to the city center the church is, the more doctors and the more lawyers the church has, uh, the more of a temptation it is for a church to capitulate to the goddess of success, as D.H. Lawrence calls her. Other churches might actually be more similar in their situation to uh, the church at Pergamum today. I can think of one example. Um, I've learned a lot from Tim Keller and Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Um, is New York City maybe the Babylon or the Rome of the present age? I don't know. Perhaps. But Redeemer Church has thrived in the midst of that big city, in the midst of secularism and hedonism. Um, and even though they're not directly persecuted, like it seems Pergamum was, they have favor in their city to a certain degree, but it's certainly not because their orthodox belief and their following of Jesus. And yet, Tim Keller has, has spoken frankly about the sexual habits of many young people in his church and other Christians in New York City. And he says that, look, whenever a young person comes to him, knocks on the door of his office and says, Pastor Tim, you know, I'm having some problems. He says, come sit down. And they say, look, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm not feeling close to God. My faith is kind of dried out and withered. I just feel like God's not near me. I'm struggling with issues of faith and science and doubts are starting to creep in or something like that. He has said that though he doesn't say this to people, he could. He could say immediately to them, who are you sleeping with? And if they were honest, they would reply, how did you know? And his point is that in a place like New York City, when you're trying to be a Christian in a place like that, uh, he says, gosh, nine out of ten Christian single people are sleeping with somebody they're not supposed to be sleeping with. Because that's just the way of the world around them. So on the one hand, you can be strong, you can have a great witness, you can have favor in your community, and you can struggle to be different, to stand out in these fundamental matters of your witness. Public witness, like Pergamum, strong. Winsome articulation of orthodox faith, Strong, private holiness, weak maybe, permissive, like Pergamum, like New York City Christians, perhaps like us as well, who knows. But then Jesus says, look, church at Pergamum, I love you. I, however, am the Lord who has the two-edged sword. And it's a sword, verse 16, he says that, that is coming out of my mouth. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? In fact, an overly literal translation might say, I have the two-mouthed sword. And the emphasis here seems to be not that, you know, Jesus talks a lot or that he speaks extra harshly to people that break the rules or his enemies or anything like this, but rather he's trying to get across to this dear church that he loves 
that they must never forget that His Word, His precepts, His vindications of the righteous, His, his warnings to the unjust, His declaration that He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, that everything that comes from His mouth, that these are absolutely powerful uh, speech acts. There's a philosopher, J.L. Austin, and he wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words. You know when a, a, a pastor gets up and says, I now pronounce you husband and wife? It's about the coolest thing that you can say, right? Because like, you say something, and boom, it happened, right? A little bit of a power trip, I admit, when I get to say things like that. But Jesus, more than anyone else, does things with words. He speaks, and worlds are created, He speaks, and justice rolls down like a mighty stream. Roman culture in the time of Pergamum had a concept of the right of the sword. And only certain authorities in certain cities in the Roman Empire had this kind of power, the right of the sword, to exercise uh, the sword. And Pergamum was one of these choice places in the Roman Empire. And so, Hearers of this letter, readers in the church of Pergamum, would have known exactly what Jesus was trying to get at when he said, I have the two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. I have the right to the sword and not Caesar. And ultimately, so many of these letters to the churches, and really the book of Daniel, which Sam will unfold for us in the next coming weeks, is a question, isn't it, about who's really Lord here? Is it Caesar, or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? And so part of what Jesus says by the Spirit to this church in Pergamum and to us in Zurich today is, yes, you are right, church at Pergamum. Yes, you are right, church at Zurich. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Good job. You've never stood up in worship and said, Caesar is Lord. Instead, we hear, Jesus is Lord. And... You're gutsy enough to do it, even when it might get you in trouble. But at the same time, on the other hand, Jesus is also saying to First Church Pergamum and to IPC Zurich, hey, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. You see, sometimes it's easier, isn't it, to oppose a top-down leader who's in authority, a Caesar who has put his image everywhere, on the coins, on the seals, on signs like Caesar used to do across the empire. It's easier to oppose that kind of rule, isn't it, than it is to oppose what we might call a Caesarian culture, a culture of Caesar, even a cult of Caesar. And to have the functionality of our lives be one way after another of bowing down, not to Jesus as Lord, but to Caesar. And the church, in the midst of a culture that marches to the drumbeat of Caesar, is tempted all the time to march to the drumbeat of Caesar as well, instead of to Jesus. The thing is, though, Caesar, as the person, can only be in one place at a time, so he spreads himself and his claims to sovereignty out by sticking his head on coins and all these other things. But the trick is that a Caesarian culture it can seep into a church unnoticed. Sort of the way that like 
slowly and subtly, does this happen to you in your apartment? Somebody lights up a cigarette on, on the balcony just below you, and like you start to think, is my, is my teenager smoking? <laughs> What's happening here? And it just kind of fills up your apartment bit by bit. And the next thing you know, you might as well be smoking too. In the same way, a Caesarean culture can seep its way in a creepy way into the life of a congregation. And Jesus is calling for correction to this. And so he is calling us also to have a soft heart to his correction. All throughout the book of Revelation, these first couple chapters and these letters, he's calling for a heart of repentance, a willingness to heed the teaching that he gives. And this warning that comes to the church of Pergamum, that comes to us here tonight from Jesus, it's not meant to intimidate them. It's not meant to scare us. Because Jesus warns, of course, but he's not one to resort to pathetic scare tactics to just sort of tweak our behavior. Jesus tells us that we must live, as Luther loved to say, a whole life of repentance. That we have to repent regularly and consistently and specifically about specific things that we learn about ourselves. Of all the various ways in which we find out that uh, our vigilance for Jesus' lordship is not enough to keep the culture of Caesar and of Satan out of our life and out of the life of our homes and out of the life of our churches. So I think the aim of Jesus here is to create in the church of Pergamum and in the church here in Zurich a culture of repentance. And to do so from now until the day when we are, as a church, completely purified with all the saints in the new creation. And so what does a a culture of repentance look like? It looks like we aren't full of cocksureness, but rather we are humble. Instead of looking down on our noses at other churches who aren't as big as us, who aren't uh, as cool as us, who don't have the music and the ice cream and the whatever else that we have, that are less active, or maybe even that are less orthodox than we are, we should instead be in the habit of asking ourselves regularly, where, where have we allowed Caesar's culture and Caesar's spirit to creep into the life of our church in subtle ways? How can we repent? You know, one of the most memorable days of my entire Christian life, I was a pastoral intern, and my pastor was leading the devotion at the elders' meeting. And this was in a big steeple, center city church, with a lot of doctors and lawyers, a lot of gray suits in the room that day. And he said, here's my heart for you, elders. My heart for you is that we would read the New Testament together bit by bit in these meetings. And that every time Paul or John or Peter or James or Jesus says, here is what it means to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus. Here is a command, in other words, an imperative in the New Testament that some elder among you would stand up and say, whoa, 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 wait. Let's just stop for a moment. How are we, as a church, going to obey this command in a practical way? It stunned me. This was the pastor's heart for the elders of this church. 
that they would be so keen to follow the ways of Jesus that every time they read a command from the New Testament, they would say, how does this make the life of our congregation more devoted to our Savior if we should obey it? A repentant church will still have their sins exposed by the Lord Jesus, and it will be tough to hear. But a repentant church will be one in which the lordship of Jesus has such sway that the church is able to experience regularly the joys of hearing Jesus say, well done, well done in this area, well done in that area, you're growing in my grace. And they won't have to fear the sorrows of Jesus' ultimate condemnation because their hearts will be soft. And guess what? A repentant church is also full of repentant churchmen and churchwomen and children of the living God who are sensitive to what He's calling us to do by way of repentance and renewal. And so while Jesus, by the Spirit, addresses us corporately today, and He addresses us individually about our influence, about the the ways in which we're responsible personally and collectively for the culture of our families and our church. While he addresses us in these ways, he doesn't do so to condemn us, to scare us, but that we might grow in grace. Are we as individual Christians outwardly and publicly? Are we robust in our beliefs, but subtly and sneakily receptive to anti-Christian words and actions and attitudes? And do we allow these attitudes and words and actions to pollute the atmosphere of the church in such a way that those for whom the Lord Jesus has died have to breathe this toxic air and atmosphere in? Jesus says, may it not be so among us. And so, may God help us each become repentant people as individuals and as a church as well, so that our words and our actions and our attitudes become full of humility, grace, so they become savory of Jesus. You know, when we repent, when it's our regular practice to repent, it's really hard to be cocky, and it's really hard to be judgmental towards others. Because we know what it's like to be on our knees saying, I'm sorry. The wonderful thing about the sharpness of the words of Jesus that come out like a double-edged sword from his mouth. The wonderful thing about this is that if our hearts are soft collectively and individually, then the sharpness of Jesus' incisive words, even his rebukes, even though they cut us, they cut to heal and Jesus, with the sword of His Word, can, can cut away all both the overtly and the subtly rebellious parts of our hearts. The overtly and subtly loyal to Caesar bits of our church culture. The Word of Jesus, after all, we're told, never returns to Him void. It always accomplishes its purpose. And so for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, if He wounds, He wounds to what? To heal. If he rebukes, he rebukes not to condemn, but to save us. And the result is, for the true Christian and for the true Christian church, the response to the often hard-to-hear word of the Lord against our sin is not just sorrow. It is sorrow. It hurts, doesn't it? But it's also alongside sorrow for our sin. It's thankfulness. 
So our hearts cry then when we have this posture of repentance becomes not just, oh Lord, it hurts so much to learn the ways that I've hurt you, that I've hurt your witness, that I've hurt our witness together. Forgive me. But our heart's cry also becomes, oh Lord, it is so very good to be able to identify this area of of infection and sin in my heart and in my life, in our heart and our life together. And to have it cut away from me, to have it cut away from us. Lord Jesus, cut it away and make sure you get it all. And then when you do, Lord Jesus, find something else to cut away. So that I, so that we might be fully healed and restored to a place where our witness is true in our community again. So that we're authentic and holistic in our witness to the community. So that each part of our hearts and our minds and our lives conspire together together to bear witness genuinely to your lordship, Lord Jesus, and not to Caesar's or to anyone else's. See, it's a joyful thing to have the Lord call us to repentance and faith. And then Jesus ends this short letter to Pergamum with a couple of rewards, some incentives, as it were. Uh, He does so in most of these letters to the churches here in Revelation. In this particular one, there are, there are two things that Jesus says are, in a sense, hidden. They're a little secret between me and you, church. There is, first of all, hidden manna. Hidden manna. And then there's, second of all, this, this white stone that he's going to give, and it has a name that's only known to the recipient. What's going on here? How's this supposed to encourage us? Oh, cool, a white stone. Right? This is revelation. All kinds of stuff is weird here. But we think that what this may mean symbolically, um, first of all, uh, the hidden manna. It probably refers to the manna that the Israelites ate as they were leaving the evils of Egypt behind and setting out on their own. It wasn't exciting to them. But it, it sustained them day after day. And in John chapter 6, the same Lord Jesus who composes this letter tells us that he is, after all, the bread of life. He's the true manna that's come down from heaven. He's better able to sustain us in our pilgrimage to glory than the manna was able to in the wilderness for the Israelites. And so if we commit our lives of, of repentance and faithful witness-bearing to Jesus, if we commit ourselves unreservedly to Jesus... He promises to reward us with what? With Himself in His fullness. I am the bread of life, He says. Not check out this cool thing that I'll give you. It's bread. I'm different than that. But I am the bread of life given for you. The reward of unrestricted allegiance to Jesus is after all, an all-you-can-eat buffet of His own love and intimacy and goodness to us. Isn't that something? And what about this white stone? Well, the priests used to go into the holy place and to meet intimately with God, and they had on their breast pieces stones for each of the twelve tribes of Israel and the names of the tribes on them. And so symbolically, every time the priest went into the holy place to meet with God, the priest was bearing every individual in all of Israel and the tribes that they belonged to 
on his heart into the holy place so that God's heart would meet the heart of each Israelite. So many interpreters think that maybe what's going on here is, like in the Old Testament, now the believer's own name or the name of the church is on this white stone. There's something intimate, therefore, between each believer and Christ and between each church and Christ. And it's not public. It happens in the intimacy of our fellowship together with our God. Our witness is public, but our intimacy is deeply personal. And it's a secret, it seems. A secret that might be something more, but certainly not less, than Jesus' own mouth declaring, Church at Pergamum, Church at Zurich, I love you, and I am yours, and you are mine forever. You see, in the end, all other religions and all secularities that are out there, they promise stuff and they promise power in, turn, or in return for allegiance to them. You give us your allegiance, we'll give you stuff and power. <clears throat> but it's only the Lord Jesus. More than the glories of the new Jerusalem that will be ours, more than the crown of righteousness that he will put on our heads, more than all of the other rewards that will be ours, white stones, bread, the great meal at the last day, more than any other reward that he'll give his faithful friends on the last day, only Jesus offers ultimately as the prize for faith and faithfulness to him. What? Not power and prestige, although there's some of that, but most fundamentally, more and more of himself. More and more of himself. So when you and I renounce, when our, when our church renounces the ways of the world, the ambition for unrestricted money and sex and power and all the things that we could want, What we get in exchange is joyful friendship with and joyful service to the one who owns everything after all, the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who created the human body and everything that it can do, and the one who wields ultimately unlimited power, and he does so wisely and generously in the service of his beloved bride, the church. See, Allegiance to Jesus as a church and as individuals will cost us. Sam will show us how it cost Daniel and his friends. Jesus showed how it costed, and he acknowledged how it costed Pergamum. And there are ways in which it will cost us here in Zurich, too. But in whatever ways we need to repent and turn afresh to Jesus, the awesome thing, the awesome thing about being a Christian believer is that when we turn in repentance, and when we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. We're not going to lift our souls to anyone else any longer. When we say that, when we mean it, as Christians and as a congregation, then the Lord always responds with, here I am, and I am yours. I will never let you go. Isn't it, isn't it so cool 
to be a Christian believer. It's just about the coolest thing there is. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meditation. We pray that it would be helpful as Sam unfolds Daniel for us in the coming months. We pray that we would be ready to repent, that we would turn from our idols, that we would constantly ask ourselves when we read your words in the New Testament, how can we obey? How can we love? How can we serve? How can we bow and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Take my life and make it yours. Give us an attentiveness to your spirit so that we would repent when we need to repent. Be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Be spurred on towards more love and good deeds. And in the end, so that we can enjoy more intimate fellowship, each of us personally and all of us together as your church with you, our dear Lord Jesus. You've given us your life, so we give our lives afresh back to you. And we make our prayer together in the name of Jesus. Amen.